Well, it's uh, wonderful to be uh, together again this evening and to open God's Word. We're in John chapter 21. If uh, you're not there, please turn there. And as you're turning to John 21, uh, let me share something. I love facts. I can never remember many facts, but I get fascinated uh, by facts. And sometimes I'll get a little bit obsessed about a certain type of fact and I'll go looking into it. Um, so let me tell you some facts I find fascinating. Did you know? A rat can last longer than a camel without water. There we are. That's a, that's a fact I don't think you expected to learn uh, this evening. Um, but other facts which I find fascinating are the facts of kind of humanity and what humans are able to do. Not just rats and camels, but humans. For example, how long a human being can survive in extreme circumstances under the earth. There has been a number of disasters over the last few years where people have been stuck in mines and caves. Um, so for example um, in Haiti where there was the earthquake um, uh, a number of years ago, some people were brought out of the rubble after 28 days. Um, you'll remember the football team down in Thailand, they were stuck in the cave, I think they were under there for 18 days. Um, back in 2005, in the Pakistan earthquake, some were there for 63 days. I mean, it's amazing how long human beings can survive in those circumstances. But let me tell you two, two, two things about those circumstances. Number one, no one wants to live there. No one wants to be stuck under the ground. And number two, you can't live there long. It's not going to last long. Now, amazing facts, those are, I think, interesting. You can debate whether you think they are. John's Gospel ends with a statement that actually the facts about Jesus are amazing. Did you see it there right at the end? John 21 and verse 25. This is what John says. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a great way uh, to end, isn't it? Um, teachers and lecturers, I don't think you'd be impressed by that kind of essay, would you? Where a student or a pupil writes an essay and at the end says, well, there's lots of other things, um, but there's not enough room. Uh, you wouldn't get a good mark for that. But actually, in a gospel about the life of Jesus, what else can you write? What else can you write? You're never going to contain him in a gospel. In fact, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, you can't contain him because there are so uh, many amazing facts about the Lord Jesus. It would be interesting um, when you meet on Zoom this week or when you phone each other this week to ask the question to one another as believers, what's the most amazing thing about Jesus to you? What's the amazing fact about Jesus? For some of you, it could be the fact that he is uncreated, that Jesus is eternal. That is an amazing fact. For some of you, it could be the fact that the uncreated eternal one became part of creation. He incarnated. That is an amazing fact. For some of you, it might be that that incarnation was a real incarnation. He became a real human being, a real man with real feelings. Perhaps some of you would go straight to the cross and say, isn't it amazing that he died for me? Some of you after last weekend perhaps would go to the resurrection. Isn't it amazing that Jesus laid on his life only to take it back up again and he has beaten death? And perhaps for some of us the most amazing fact would be that he gives that to us. 
that his resurrection is our resurrection, that his life is our life. Some of you might go even further, actually. And the fact that amazes you is that the Lord Jesus today is in heaven and he's praying for you and he's preparing a place for you. I wonder what would be the most amazing fact for you. I think it's fair to say that it changes for me. I think there are things as I read in scripture that just bless me so much. And I think this has got to be the most amazing thing ever. And then you see something else. You think, well, that's got to be the most amazing thing ever. But I'm going to put down what I think tonight. I think the most amazing thing that I keep coming back to about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's this. And I'm going to quote an old hymn to sum up what it is. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. I think that's the most amazing fact for me, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. I think that is a wonderful fact. And I think that that is a fact that if you're not a Christian, you need to grasp so that your life is transformed eternally. And if you are a Christian, you need to grasp afresh and anew. Because as Christians, I think there can be kind of two experiences. So sometimes for the Christian, it is possible to live in what I want to call the mineshaft of condemnation. The mineshaft of condemnation. Other people have called it perhaps spiritual depression. But it is possible for the believer to go into this experience where you just wonder whether God loves you. And you just feel condemned and unclean. And it's a, it's a mineshaft of condemnation. You can't live there long. No one wants to live there. But as well for the believer, there is what I want to call the mountaintop of justification. There is that experience of the believer where you're on the mountaintop. At the moment, living in Abergavenny, um, I can only walk around my house. I've only got an hour to get somewhere. And whilst I'm surrounded by beautiful mountains like the Blorange, like the Skirid, uh, like the Sugarloaf, I can't get there at the moment. And what I'm missing is going to the top and looking up. And the view and the vista from those mountaintops are amazing. And perhaps you've known that as a believer. Perhaps you can remember a time when you were sitting back in the heath, sitting under the word of God. And in that moment, you saw a vision and a vista and a view of God and his gospel that just transformed you. Perhaps it was as you were singing a hymn. And a line jumped out and you realised how great God was. Perhaps it was at home as you read the scriptures alone. There are those experiences of the mineshaft and the mountaintop. And what I want to do this evening is try and help us to understand how do you get from the mineshaft to the mountaintop? How do you get from that feeling of condemnation to that enjoyment and delight in justification? And I want to do it from uh, John chapter 21. I'm going to cover the whole chapter, but focus mainly on, on the verses in, in the middle. And as I've already quoted uh, the hymn, I Stand Amazed, I am going to base my points um, a little bit on the language from that hymn. Now in, in John chapter 21 and verses 1 to 14, um, in my first uh, kind of point, we see here how marvellous Jesus is. Oh, how marvellous. Really, what you get in the first 14 verses is something which is unbelievable, something which is extraordinary, something which stands out. 
In chapter 21 and verse 1, it says this, that Jesus shows himself again. Jesus has died. He's truly dead. They've tested. He's been killed by professionals. But now he's risen from the dead and he has appeared to different witnesses, probably over 500 by this point. And he comes again as if to say, I really am risen. I really am alive. And it's wonderful. He comes. This was no kind of grief stricken hallucination. This is a fact. I am alive. I'm not quite sure what is happening with the disciples here. They've seen the risen Jesus, but yet what have they done? They've gone back fishing. They've gone back to their old life. What is, what is happening there? You wonder sometimes whether what they're doing is what we do in, in grief. Now, I, I don't know what the tradition is in Cardiff, but back in West Wales, where I come from, uh, when someone dies, someone will then go to the home of the, of the widow or the widower, and they go pretty much just to make cups of tea. Uh, that's what they do. And everybody who comes to Kedem Daimler, everybody who comes to, to sympathise is, is given a cup of tea. Why? Because that's what you do. Um, you do what you know. And what do we know? We know how to drink a cup of tea and it helps. And the disciples are going back to what they know. They're going back to, to fishing. The Lord Jesus had called them to be fishers of men. Fishers of men but they've lowered their gaze to what Jesus had called them. They're now just going back to fishing. And as if to be kicked in the teeth, they go back to fish and they don't catch anything. They go back to what they've known and they can't even do what they knew. They fish all night because in the morning they're going to take the fish to market and there is nothing. And then in the morning, someone arrives on the seashore and, say, and says to them, try on the other side. I don't know how you would respond if you were one of the fishermen, if you've been trying something all night and then someone says, try the other side. I don't think I'd be happy, but they do it. They know that there's something going on here. And so it's early in the morning, Jesus comes. He tells them, put the net on the other side. They do it. And in their obedience, there is an abundant catch. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Verse 11, they catch 153 fish. That is recorded for us in scripture. Um, I don't know if you know what the 153 signifies. Um, it's fascinating. Um, it signifies the fact that it was a large catch of fish. Uh, that's what it signifies. Um, I don't think there's anything more than that. This is a huge catch, and it's so huge that they count it, that they count it. And they want you to know that Jesus is marvellous. And so once they realise what's going on, you see back in verse 7, well, Peter sees who it is, it's Jesus, so he jumps into the water. Here we go. Peter is back and he just wants to see Jesus. Verse 8, the others follow. And verse 9, they have breakfast on the beach together. What an amazing scene. Jesus is really real. He is really risen. He is physical. He can cook and he can eat. He's making sure that they know that this is risen. You see, John chapter 21 wants us to see that Jesus has beaten death. Jesus has risen from the grave. The tomb is empty and Jesus is real. And we need to understand how marvellous this is. At the moment when the news is so full of statistics of death, we need to remember that Jesus has beaten death that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
there is something here that for the Christian who is trusted in Christ, we realize that death is no longer the end. That actually there is a life to come. For the Christian, as we prayed earlier, those words from Paul in Philippians, to die, to die is gain. We live very differently in the world now. I think we live in a world where, where our mantra and verse is this, to live is gain and to die is Christ. That's how we live. The longer I live, the better. And if I die, well, at least I've got Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in effect, is for many believers, um, UHT milk. It's, it's long life milk. No one really wants to drink it. But if you run out of fresh milk, at least you've got UHT. For many of us, I think that's what we think. As long as I live, it's okay. But if I die, at least I've got Jesus. Paul turns that on his head. He says, no, 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 no. To live is Christ. To die is gain. The resurrection of Jesus is so real that it revolutionizes death. Death is now sleep. Death is now where we go to be with the Lord. And so he's here. There's a sense in which this is the ultimate that takes us from the, the mind shaft of condemnation to the mountaintop of justification. It's the resurrection. Jesus has died on the cross. He has taken our sins and he has now paid the penalty. He's been able to say it is finished, paid in full. And so now rising from the dead, he is victorious. He has said it is done. And now there is life and he is the first fruits. He is blazing a trail for all of us. You see, when it comes to the mineshaft of condemnation, the worst place you can turn is to whether you're adequate or not. That's the worst place you can turn. When you're in the mineshaft of condemnation, you have to turn to Jesus. You have to see his adequacy. You have to see what he has done, his sufficiency, his work. That's where you need to look. You need to see he is marvellous. But let me kind of zoom in on this a little bit. Because you see, secondly, I want to show you how, how wonderful Jesus is. And we see this in verses 15 to 17. I want to look particularly at the first half of verse 15. But in verses 15 to 17, we see how wonderful Jesus is. That is, what happens in these verses is something that makes me wonder. It gives me astonishment and it's something that's going to take Peter from the mind shaft of condemnation to the mountaintop of justification. Now I think the Lord Jesus here it would seem to me is replaying certain aspects of Peter's life and, and John is quite conscious I think in, in writing that um, so, for example, I think the verses we've just seen in verses uh, 1 to 9 and the call for fishing is going back to an earlier account back in, in Luke 5, where Jesus has called them to leave their nets and called them to be fishers of men. That call is being replayed. And I think the verses we've got here in verses 15 to 17 correspond back to John 18, uh, where really uh, Peter had made some big claims about what he was going to do for Jesus. And Jesus is deliberately replaying parts of Peter's life. He is orchestrating this as the God who is sovereign. And what he's doing is within John 21, and we see this in the other Gospels as well, he's deliberately seeking out Peter. He's coming to the disciples, but he's deliberately seeking out Peter. He goes to Peter, he talks to Peter, he wants Peter. And I think he does this for two reasons. 
he, he goes to Peter for two reasons. The first reason is this. He wants to point out Peter's sin. Jesus wants to point out Peter's sin. Now that might seem odd. And you might be wondering, hold on, I thought, I thought this was a point about how wonderful Jesus is. Surely pointing out someone's sin is not wonderful. Well, let me explain in a moment why I think it's wonderful. But you see the way Jesus points out his sin. And when you have a look at verse uh, 15, he comes, uh, Peter has swam and run uh, to Jesus and he comes to him. And Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Peter, do you really love me more than these? Now, some of you who are looking at the text are going, no, that's not what it says, John. In my mind, that's what it says, Peter, because we're talking about Simon Peter. But actually, when you look at the text, he says, Simon, Simon, deliberately calling him Simon, not Peter. As one commentator says, Peter the Rock had become quicksand. Peter the Rock had become quicksand. In calling him Simon, he has pointed out, you've not been the rock as you understood it. You see, Peter, in being called the rock, was not meant to be the rock on which the church is built. That's not what it's about. It's the confession that Peter made. That is the rock on which the church is built. But Peter, what has he done? He said, I'll never deny you. And he has. He's turned to quicksand and he knows it. So what does Jesus say? He says, Simon. Son of Jonah, and then he says, Do you love me more than these? Now, the context is the 153 fish. Is that what he's on about? You've gone back to fishing, here's all these fish, do you love me more than these fish? No, I don't think that's what it means. Jesus is deliberately pointing him to his big boast I will love you more than these. They will leave you, but I will never leave you. I think Jesus is looking at the other disciples. He's saying, Do you love me more than these? Peter, Simon, has realised now, hasn't he, that he is not everything. He's not self-sufficient. In and of himself, he is not adequate. And Jesus is pointing it out. He is doubly pointing out. He's pointing out his sin. How is that wonderful? How is that loving? How is that kind? Well, it's incredibly kind. Because as one Puritan, Thomas Watson, puts it, till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Let me pause here and unpack this. This need to understand why Jesus convicts us and shows us our sin so that we can see our inadequacy. I do think, for me, uh, the Puritans seem to have got this right. There's a number of books which... I love reading and, and reread. For example, a book called The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. I try and reread every couple of years. And I love that book. I remember reading it for the first time and coming across this sentence. We have this for a foundation truth that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. It is better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. And what Richard Sibbs is saying is this, is it's better to be bruised by the knowledge of our sin so that we can cry out to our saviour than to think we're okay, than to think we're okay. And when Sibbs looks at Simon Peter and Thomas at the end of John's gospel, he notes that Jesus goes to them. Have you ever noticed that? In the resurrection appearances, 
Jesus goes to Peter, who had denied, and Thomas, who was doubting. And Richard Sibb says this, Jesus was most familiar and open to troubled souls. I wonder if you believe that, that Jesus is most familiar and open to troubled souls. But this kind of teaching is open to abuse. It is possible when we talk about looking at our sin to go too far. Um, so another favourite book of mine is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks, another book well worth rereading. And he actually says that Satan has tactics to keep us in the mineshaft of condemnation. And uh, in, in one section, which is called Satan's Devices to Keep Saints in a Sad, Doubting, Questioning and Uncomfortable Condition. Um, that's really the mineshaft of condemnation. In, that's what I'm using in modern language. Thomas uh, Brooks says this. How does he do it? He says, by causing them to be still pouring and musing upon sin, to mind their sins more than their saviour. Here's the danger point. The danger point is to see your sin and to, like a coin, put the sin in front of your eye so that it blocks out the sun. We need to realise that our sin, whilst horrendous and grievous, and it's what drove the Lord Jesus, that's why he had to go to the cross because of our sin. Whilst it is horrendous, as Richard Sibb says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And really, our sin should see us go, ah, and then we see the Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We need to look. Our sin should drive us to our knees to see the Saviour. That's why Jesus is pointing out Peter's sin. Because if Jesus doesn't point out his sin, Peter can't trust fully in the Lord. He can't have that condemnation taken away and enjoy the justification. There's a sense in which you have to convict in the sin so that the balm of the gospel can be applied. In terms of the Psalms, uh, David and the Psalmists will talk uh, this image of you need to realise that you're in the pit before you can be lifted out, before you can be lifted out. I just love the fact that Jesus goes for Peter. He goes to him. In Mark's Gospel, it's really interesting. Jesus sends for the disciples and Peter and Peter. Some of us, I think, have... Uh, what I like to call truncheon theology, truncheon theology. We, we think of God as this kind of big policeman in the air who is just waiting and he is going to punish you and leave you. But that's not the God of the Bible. Even when he comes to point out our sin, he does it as a loving father. Loving fathers discipline their children. He does it because he loves us. And we need to see what he does. Going back to Sibs and, and, and um, the Puritans, Sibs makes the point in his book, he says, have you ever thought about how God reveals himself in the Bible? The images he gives of himself. So he says, God reveals himself as a husband, a shepherd, a brother, a lamb, a hen. He says, look, they're caring roles. God cares for us. He loves us. And how do we know that ultimately? Because Jesus gave himself 
for us. That doesn't minimize our sin, but that shows us that the Savior is greater than our sin. But until we see the sin, we will not go to the Savior. And I think when you see how Jesus goes for Peter at the end of the Gospels, I think the Puritans are right when they say that God, God looks specifically for those people. So if you're in the mine shaft of condemnation this evening, the Lord wants to come to you. He wants to come to you. Let me go back to Sibs. One last quote from Sibs. He says this, as a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline himself to the weakest. Perhaps you believe God inclines himself to the strongest. Look, they're a sorted Christian. God must really love them. Sibs and the Puritans say, no, no, no. God inclines himself as a mother to an ill child. So too God inclines himself to you. If you're in that mind shaft of condemnation, as, as Peter was, God wants you to see your sin so that he can lift you up and show you the Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And so, if you understand your sin, that is a place where you don't stay in condemnation, but you come to conviction. That sin is pointed out so that when you're in conviction, you can see Christ. There is a place of humility. The Beatitudes start with, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where we start the blessed life, is to be poor in spirit. And he will come to us. And so what does Jesus do? He points out his sin so that then he can recommission him. He can recommission him. See it there in the second half of verse 15 and towards uh, verse 16 and 17. I love this. He doesn't point out uh, Peter's sin and say, there we are, you failed, but you're forgiven. Uh, but now I'll bench you. I think that's what we like to think God does. You failed, but you're forgiven. But just keep your head down now. But no, that's not what he does it at all. Replaying those denials, he goes back through and says, come on, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed the lambs. Do the work that you've been called to do. He recommissions Peter. We need to be careful that when we come out of the mind shaft of condemnation, we don't just then settle on the bench of mediocrity. Just going to be a poo filler. Just going to keep my head down. That's all I'm going to do. No, 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 no. God wants to lift you up. He wants you to be a fisher of men. He wants you to live for him. He wants you to grow in the gospel. Don't let Satan disqualify you from living the life that God has called you to. To be a witness for him. To be an ambassador for him. Don't let Satan disqualify you from it. His forgiveness is full and free. And just as he recommissions Peter, he wants to recommission us. So what happens to Peter? We get to the end of uh, the Gospel of John. Peter is recommissioned. So what does Peter do now? Well, you can read it in the book of Acts. He lives a victorious Christian life. He never struggles again. He never falls again. Um, he is a wonderful Christian. If you've read the book of Acts and letters like Galatians, actually you realise, no, that's not the case. 
He's definitely a transformed man. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he is an emboldened man. But actually, as Peter goes on in life, this isn't just a one-time event. He needs forgiveness again and again and again. Which is why thirdly and finally my point from the hymn is, my song shall ever be. My song shall ever be. We see this in verses 18 to 23. We see as we come to the end that Jesus reminds Peter that his song will always need to be grace. That must be the soundtrack to our life. We need grace not just once, but every day. We need to learn to preach the gospel to us every day. And in these final verses, I think there's a couple of ways we see why we need grace. Um, I think in verse 18, we see that we need grace to grow old. Whilst I know verse 18 and 19 is talking particularly um, about the way that uh, there's going to be death, but I think it also is relevant for us. Um, one Christian leader in his last book that he ever wrote um, at the age of 88 says this, John tells us that Jesus's words had a specific reference to Peter and his death, but they embody a principle of wider application to growing old. I used to think as a teenager when I first became a Christian that the older I would become, the easier the Christian life would become. That's what I assumed. I just assumed that all the temptations of my teenage years would be sorted out when I was married and life went on and then it was just going to be easier. And I looked at older people and just assumed they didn't struggle with sin. Well, I'm not quite that old yet. Um, but so far, uh, the trajectory is that it's not getting any easier. Temptations just are changing. The older I get and the more public my ministry in the church, then the more respectable my sins become and the more hidden. We need to realise that grace needs to be the soundtrack of our life. We need to realise that we'll never be able to give up on grace. It's not that grace is like the training wheels, the stabilizers of the Christian life. And once you get going, God will take the grace away because you will be adequate. No, no, in and of ourselves, we will never be adequate. But grace, the Lord Jesus empowering us through his spirit, actually we can grow. We will still battle. We will still struggle. There's a sense in which the only way you know, or one of the ways you know that the spirit is at work in your life is that the spirit and the flesh are in battle with one another. That's one of the evidences of grace, is that you're struggling with sin. Some of you have struggled because you're going, well, hold on, I'm sure I sinned less before I was a Christian. I'm sure I'm sinning more now. No, no, you're not sinning more now. You're just more aware of your sin now. That's a work of the spirit in your life. And we need to realise that we need grace. He says, you are going to grow old. You won't be able to decide what to do anymore. He goes on to talk about a specific type of death. But he's saying to him, we need grace. All of us, as we grow older, need grace. Never give up on grace. Never think that there's a day that comes when we achieve a perfection that means no more grace. We need Jesus every day. To say there is a day when you don't need grace is like saying there is a day when you don't need air. You'll always need air and I'll always need grace. But as well, in particular, verse 18 and 19, one of the reasons Peter will need grace is because of persecution. 
because of what's going to happen in the church here. And that is true for many Christians around the world today. Uh, we have a, a large measure of freedom in our country, uh, but for many of our brothers and sisters, they are persecuted. But even for some of you, even though there's a national freedom, perhaps in uh, your family, uh, there can be a, a, an antagonism towards the faith in the workplace, perhaps. There can be an agenda against the faith. And we need grace, not just to fight temptation, but also to fight the battles of the faith. That's what we need. We need to realise that our song should always be grace. So how do you live like this? This is what brings us. So if you're in the mind shaft of condemnation, here's my message to you. Jesus wants you to see that you're a sinner so that he can show you that he is a greater saviour. So that he can lift you, not to a park bench of mediocrity, but so he can lift you to a mountaintop of justification. Where you can see that now my life is in him and all I have is his. No one can take me that away from me. No one can pluck me from his hand because I am in Christ. And he wants you to see that and enjoy that. But he also wants you to be aware that there will be battles in this life. And as you face those battles, you turn to him in grace. And how do you grow in that grace? I think it's by being amazed by Jesus afresh. I have a, a gent in my church, and before he preaches, he always likes to pray. We would see Jesus. And that's what we need. We need to see Jesus. And the more we see Jesus, the more we are strengthened by him. The more he fills our minds and hearts, the more we will live for him. And that's what it means to live the Christian life.